you would take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 16. Hopefully, if you have a paper in front of you, it'll help you stay awake. Motive to my madness. That's one motive to my madness. Anyway, but I wanted you to have a copy of the notes. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, in verses 17 through 18, the Bible says, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged his disciples they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. So this afternoon we're going to be looking at identifying the Lord's churches. Um, you know, as we met back in November, December, about some of these things, and deacons and I sat down and hashed out some things to identify what is a, one of the Lord's churches. Not all churches are the Lord's churches. Um, and so that's what we need to consider, or have the authority of Christ. And so let's, um, we'll look at this, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privilege that we have to have a written record of set forth to define and determine and to show us, manifest to us, the truth of thy word, that we might have um, wisdom uh, to understand thy truth and concerning what are true churches and what are not. And Father, I pray that you help us to understand our purposes for our edification, for our good. Um, I pray that you'd help us just to understand, help us to understand that uh, that we might uh, study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. So I pray that you give us wisdom and discernment and understanding into thy truth, that we might be more conformed to the image of your dear Son and the pattern that he left us for his church. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> You know, there, there are many um, things in our world today that call themselves churches or a church. Uh, it could be a denomination, it could be a cult, it could be just a, any number of things, just as are, there are many in our world today that call themselves Christian, which are not, according to the Bible definition. And so as we consider this this afternoon, we want to look at some things that indicate or indicators in a legitimate New Testament church of Jesus Christ. And of course, the thought here is, or the understanding behind this is, that these things would we would use in considering uh, and accepting a baptism from another church or not to accept that baptism. And And so... Um, you know, one thing. That, you know, these are these are there's a there's a several things here that we have listed four, uh, I guess five. But anyway, and um, you know, one of the things we have to understand it makes this we have to examine each situation is churches grow. They may grow in their understanding, and churches also go backwards. 
or apostatize. And so they change. You know, if you read Revelation chapter 2, you have churches that are changing. And uh, there's no such thing as a perfect church that has it all together. You know, the church at Corinth was by no means a perfect church. There wasn't any perfect churches in the New Testament. Every church that Paul wrote an epistle to had some problems. They had some issues. They had some things that they were not right on. But one of the key things that you see is a willingness to make it right. And that's the thing with the church at Corinth. You know, they had some serious problems, but when Paul wrote to them, they made changes in the right direction. So those are the things we have to consider as well. But anyway, it, these, are, these are some things, some indicators that would indicate a legitimate New Testament church. Uh, so, so consider this this afternoon. First of all, do they preach and teach a biblical gospel? Now in Galatians chapter 1... Verses 6 through 9, you know, and this is within the first century, uh, within the first 100 years after the death of Christ, after he started his church, and then there were churches out of that church started, and, and the apostles are still on, on earth, still living. And, you know, we understand from Ephesians that the church, and that you, word church there is used as an institutional sense, not necessarily a local one, but the churches are built upon the foundations of the apostles and prophets and Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So you know, Jesus, what Jesus taught and what the apostles taught is sound doctrine for churches. So you, we're within that time frame, and the churches of Galatia, Paul's writing to them in chapter 1, and, and um, this is according to the dates I have in my Bible, it's 58 A.D., so it's very early, uh, within 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. And, and Paul writes to them and says this in verse 6, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you under the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Of course, in our modern world, the great debate here is repentance. Is repentance a necessary part of the gospel? And, you know, of course, there are multitudes, many that would say that it is not, and or would redefine the word repentance. You know, is is a gospel, quote-unquote, without repentance, true to New Testament teaching. That's what we have to ask ourselves. And, you know, the gospel began with John the Baptist. Didn't begin with Jesus Christ. Began with John the Baptist. In fact, Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1 tells us this. And, you know, one of the things that is very important in the Bible is a what they call first mention. In Mark 1, verse 1 through 4, the Bible says, The beginning of the gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So, Again, the gospel began with John the Baptist, and John taught repentance. 
And we see this very clearly spelled out for us in Matthew chapter 3 and verses 1 through 9. And contrary to what the easy believism crowd says, that John obviously taught that repentance was not just uh, a change of mind or a change of, of unbelief to belief. It's, it was more than that. Uh, that repentance actually has fruit. Matthew 3, verse 1, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair, and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Went out to him Jerusalem, and all Judea, and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. When we saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. So, John here taught that repentance is more than just a mind game or something that goes on in your mind. Repentance has fruit. It has a resulting action. And he says to the Pharisees, bring forth, therefore, fruits meets repentance. Now, the basic definition of repentance is a change of mind. But a change of mind always, always produces a change of action, a change of direction. And, of course, the Bible teaches throughout that repentance is necessary for salvation, that it, 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 repentance has fruit, or that is, it has evidence that is seen. And that's what John's looking for here. When he says to the Pharisees, bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. You guys, your life doesn't show that you have repented or turned away from your sin. It hasn't happened. Definitely there was something in their lives that he could see that did not demonstrate true repentance. Uh, you know, repentance you know, carries forth with it a willingness to turn away from sin. A willingness to change directions. Uh, these, of course, the Pharisees were trusting in that they were children of Abraham. And they thought because they were children of Abraham, they had certain privileges and rights and uh, special privileges that you know, that made them righteous and where others were just absolutely wicked, which, which John um, uh, rebuked them for. So, so repentance was taught and practiced by John. Uh, it was also taught and practiced by Jesus Christ himself. Matthew four seventeen says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, the apostles taught, Repentance was necessary for salvation in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Acts 2 and verse 38, when Peter is preaching to, on the day of Pentecost to the Jews there in Jerusalem, uh, he says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. In other words, you need to change your mind about what, who Jesus Christ is, And who you are. 
You know, a lot of people in our world today think that they are a little bit worthy of God's grace. Do you ever have somebody say to you, you're talking to them about the Lord, and they would say, well, I'm not that bad. In other words, they have some good in them. Now, if you compare yourself with your fellow man, maybe you could honestly say that. But we're not comparing ourselves with our fellow man. We're comparing ourselves with a holy and righteous God. And we are all as an unclean thing. We're all vile. And so, uh, and this is, this is the thing we need to understand, and this is what repentance brings to heart. And, and it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's seeing ourselves as God sees us and seeing God as he is and being willing to turn away from our sin and accept God's judgment, just judgment of ourselves. Uh, so he says, Peter said, repent and be baptized. Of course, baptism pictures a death. Um, you know, identifying with Christ in his death. So it's a willingness, it pictures a person's willingness to die to self and resurrect to new life in Christ. So Peter said, and really, I, what I believe here is, Peter's demonstrating to them that, look, if you repent you'll be willing to get baptized. You'll be willing to die to yourself. Now, for a Jew, that literally meant that because it was the identifying mark of them casting off Judaism. For them to be baptized by the church was them casting off or laying aside temple worship and all the things of Judaism, turning their back on that, repenting from that, and turning away. And, of course, many of them did. Uh, and, of course, there were consequences of that. The book of Acts record, records that for us. So, so he said, repent and be baptized. These, this is the words of Peter on the day of Pentecost. Acts 20, 21. And, you know, and some say, well, that's for the Jews. You know, there's, there's different ideas or, or excuses people make for not preaching repentance. Uh, but uh, in Acts twenty twenty one, Paul says, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, again, then Peter in Second Peter three nine, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Repentance is taught in the book of Revelation as well. So, so it's taught throughout the Bible as something necessary for salvation. You know, somebody has said it's like a, a, a battery that's got a positive and a negative. There's two parts to salvation. The positive part is faith, which means trust or dependence on. The negative part is you need to repent. You need to understand your state before God and accept the fact that God is righteous in condemning you as guilty. And then be willing to turn away from that. That's what repentance is. And, and so, I believe that when a person truly repents, you know, you don't understand everything about the Bible or everything about Christian living when you get saved. But a person that's truly repent will, will accept the truth of God's word and grow. A person that will not repent, you can't teach them. Gary Forney said one time, you cannot disciple an unconverted Christian.
cannot disciple. And that's what we have. You know, a gospel without repentance is really an unbiblical and false gospel. I believe it's the reason for so many professions without a change of life. Is why people get saved over and over again or make a profession never progress in their Christian life. And, you know, what are we doing? I was, I was, as Chris was teaching in Sunday school class this morning, this, this thought came to my mind when, when he said that Eliashib, the high priest, made a room for was Tobiah, right? I think it was Tobiah, in the temple. What are we doing to the Lord's church by preaching a false gospel and trying to bring into the Lord's church people that make false professions? Are we not bringing the heathen into the church? We, you know, to, you know it's, this, this is the fruit of compromising God's word. It's, it's allowing the unsaved into the temple of God. And when we don't give a clear presentation of what the gospel really is. And, and the reason, the thought behind this is, and, and this, is, this is again, uh, you know, and I've read, I've read Howes Anderson supporters and, and um, uh, one of the, the big, uh, uh, supposedly the best soul winner in the world was um, a guy by the name of... Uh, um, Oh, what was his name? Anyway, and he had this, you know, he had this method, you know, you, you shake their hand and you squeeze it and you get them to pray. And, and anyway, uh, the thing that they say about repentance is it kills soul winning. It kills soul winning. If you would listen to, when I, when I went to Lee, Maine, to pastor the church, there was a, a series of 22 sessions, soul winning sessions by Dr. Jack Howes in the office. And so I thought, well, this would be interesting, you know, and I, so I thought I'd listen to him. And uh, basically you persuade the man, even if they don't believe him, you, you, you know, you, you, you shake their hand and you, and you get, you bow your head to pray. And if you bow your head to pray, they'll likely bow their head in prayer out of respect for you. And then what you do is, even if they did not agree with you, even you get them to pray a sinner's prayer. And he bragged about the fact that Electrolux Vacuum Cleaner Company wanted him, asked him to come and do a sales instruction class for them on how to sell vacuum cleaners because he was such a persuasive guy in selling the gospel. The gospel isn't for sale. There's nothing attractive about death. How can we make the gospel attractive to a natural man? The way you make it attractive is you take out repentance. And then it sounds that it's all positive. There's no negatives to it. You know, many people that Jesus spoke to went away without repenting. And he accepted that. And we have to accept it too because not everyone's going to receive it. So the reality is, a gospel without repentance is a false gospel. 
So do they preach and practice, preach and teach a biblical gospel? Second thing we see here is, do they practice church discipline? Again, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 19, it says, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then chapter 18, verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church, if you neglect to hear the church, then let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this is talking about church discipline. And, and this is the, the uh, uh, means whereby a church has the right or the authority given to it by the Lord Jesus Christ to either receive members or remove members or reject Somebody applying for membership. Uh, you know, we have some examples of church discipline in the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, you have the example of the open immorality at the church at Corinth. A man was having his father's wife, and Paul said, I've already decided. I've already passed judgment. And he instructs them to... Discipline that man, remove him from church membership uh, for the destruction of the spirit or uh, the flesh that the spirit might be saved in the Lord, day of the Lord Jesus. So they remove him from membership. And if you read Second uh, uh, Corinthians, you'll find that they had and he had repented. Now people say church discipline does not work. That's why they don't do it. Well, the reason I think it doesn't work. There's two reasons I think it doesn't work. Number one, it's not exercised properly. It's usually done in vengeance. In vengeance. It shouldn't be done in vengeance. It should break our hearts when we have to discipline somebody. But it does have to be exercised. Number two is sister churches don't honor it. I've known cases where people go from this church to this church to this church because of a problem or under duress where they weren't disciplined at this church, so they go to another, and then they're not satisfied there. Then they go to another, and they continue, and nothing's ever done about it. That's just wrong. That's showing no respect for a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, it shows that they're not honoring, a church is not honoring the Lord uh, when they do that. Uh, there's an example in Second Thessalonians chapter 3 of a man, men not working. Um, and Paul said, told them, that from such withdraw thyself. And he told them to um, admonish him. Let's just go there. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. <clears throat> You know, these are just some of the things that are, that are actually spoken of clearly in the Bible. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, not after tradition which he received of us. Verse 10, For even when we were with you, this we command you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. 
Welfare is not practiced in the Bible. It's not endorsed in the Bible. In fact, it's condemned. By the way, so are house husbands. House husbands are unscriptural. You say, what in the world's a house husband? When a husband stays home and the wife goes to work and earns a living to support the home. That's unscriptural. You say, does that really happen? Yeah, it does. I know, I've known of some cases. Um, thankfully, I didn't have to deal with them because they weren't in my church, in our church. But anyway, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's not that uncommon in our world today. Um, but, uh, and it goes on and says in verse 11, For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busy bodies. And now with them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ with quietness. They work and eat their own bread. You brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So again, they were to disassociate with him or to remove him from the church role. Because he's not walking according to the command of God. Man's to make his living by the sweat of his brow. We're to earn our keep. We're to earn our way. We don't earn our salvation, but we are to earn our living. It's the command of God. And, you know, I'm not opposed to women working, but it's not the woman's place to provide the bread or the provisions for the household. It's the husband's. And so, you know, this was another instance in the Bible where church discipline was practiced. So church discipline is really the church has been given authority by the Lord to remove or reject membership or to receive membership into the body. Uh, Other examples, grounds for disciplines would be, of course, false doctrine, absence. You know, our Constitution says if if you're not here for such and such a time, you're automatically removed. You're automatically removed. If you're not supporting the church. Now, if you were at home sick and in bed and you sent your tithe and offering in, you're still supporting it. Now, that would be only means, uh, reason for absence is a, a, a um, sort of what? Providentially hindered by the Lord. You know, you're incapacitated in some way. Sad to say, but I think there's a lot of older people that think they're incapacitated, but they go to the store, they go to the doctor, they go here and they go there. Is the doctor in the store more important than the Lord is? Um, but anyway, so absence. If you don't support by, by presence and with your uh, resources, uh, you're automatically removed from membership. And, of course, immorality, and, of course, there's other things that the that, that church would exercise discipline over. So, so this, is, this is the authority the Lord gave to his church. Um, and, of course, um, a church that doesn't exercise church discipline is not be obe- being obedient to the command that God has given it. Uh, you know, church discipline is for the protection of the body from infection. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> 
Now, when you when you uh, so so Dave, you're on the farm. You're overworking in the in the in the manure pen, and you know where the where the where the pheasants are, and it's dirty and it's full of bacteria and everything like that. And you cut your finger. Would you take it down and rub it in the dirt? Why not? You're going to cover it up, right? Why? You want to protect it from bacteria, which could cause infection. If your finger gets infected, in fact, I knew a missionary, and I, I can't remember what happened to his finger, but it wasn't, wasn't anything major, but it got infected. And he had to have some major surgery on his finger because of an infection that began to spread because it wasn't properly addressed, properly taken care of. And if sin is allowed to proliferate in the church, it's like an infection. First uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the Lord Jesus. So, so there's a protection here, I believe, referred to in the body. You know, we're in, the body of Christ is described as, as uh, uh, a candlestick. Um, uh, you know, we're described as in his hand, First John 30, 10, 30. And so to put one out, is, uh, I, I think there's a protection in the body, and to put one out is to, to open one up for the affliction of, of, of uh, the devil and the destruction of the flesh, so, so, so it will bring consequences, that the spirit may be saved. So the purpose of this is to try and bring about repentance. Uh, and then he says in verse 6, Your glorying is not good. Know you little leaven, leaven at the whole lump. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So, he, again, he, he compares uh, leaving sin in the church like putting leaven into bread dough. And when you put a little bit of leaven in the dough, it affects all the dough. And it begins to grow. That leaven grows. And... And so, so he says, you know, you need to purge out the old leaven. So it's for the protection of the church from infection of sin. And many, as I said, many churches today do not practice church discipline. They don't want to be seen. You know, I'm not sure all the reasons of it, but... They don't want to be seen as negative or harsh. You know, because face it, if you have a church that practices church discipline, you're going to be looked down upon and looked as legalists and all that. But, but it is a biblical doctrine. All right. Uh, third thing here. Are they Protestant in origin? In Matthew 16, 18 again, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, there's the Lord's church, and there is another church. Look at Revelation 17. Revelation 17. <clears throat> Verse 
Verse 1. There came one of the seven angels which had the seven fowls and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon the churches, uh, the waters, I'm sorry, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-covered beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Upon her head... Upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and the blood of martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. admiration. Now, what John is describing here, and he, he, he wondered at, is the false church. Um, it's pictured as a woman. The church is spoken of as a bride, uh, bride of Christ. Uh, in Revelation 18 talks more about this. Let's look back, for example, 4 through 8, Revelation 18, 4 to 8. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, that you receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works, in the cup which she hath filled to her double. How much she hath glorified herself, and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her, for she saith in her heart, I sit a queen, and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death, and mourning, and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. So this is the false church particularly the Roman Catholic Church, you know, and false churches are concerned with creeds, credentials, cathedrals, or buildings. It's all external. It's all external. Um, you know, a church is not a creed. Really, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. Baptist is not really a creed. You know, creed is a written doctrinal statement, and we do have a written doctrinal statement, a constitution, but we don't, that constitution is a guide, but it doesn't completely define everything we believe. Um, you know, and we don't, we don't separate in the Bible well, this is minor, and this is major, and this is important, and this is not. We believe all of Scripture is important. We believe all of Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, righteousness, the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished. So, so, a, so the false churches, they're concerned with creeds, credentials, you know, scholarship, and buildings, and, and, and you know, uh, True churches are not sustained by these things, not sustained by education or scholarship, nor is it a building. It's not a building, though we may have buildings. But church is not a building. It is an assembly of people joined together by baptism and coming together with the word of God as its authority. And, you know, baptism, of course, speaks of death itself, but... Uh, 
Roman Catholicism or this false church has a beginning other than Jesus Christ. Of course, in um, around 320 A.D., it came about in in uh, opposition or in place to of the true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so this was Catholicism, the birth of Catholicism. It is joined with other religions of the world. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a menagerie of many religions come together in, under one umbrella. Uh, you know, we're seeing this more and more in our world today that you know, even the Jews and the Muslims and the Catholics are, are coming together into one. Uh, <clears throat> Protestantism, Protestant has its origin, the Roman Catholic Church. The roots of fundamentalism are in Protestantism. And really what this is, it's, it's man's attempt to purify. You know, Protestantism was man's attempt, so it's fundamentalism. Man's attempt to purify or make right something God has rejected and judged. And see, God says to this religious entity, come out of her, my people. Be not partakers with her sins. Again, and so, you know, we have in our world today uh, churches that are Roman Catholic in origin, Protestant in origin, and all that. And it's a false foundation. It's a built upon man. And, and uh, the origin of it is man-made. Uh, so, are they Protestant in origin? The fourth thing, and i got to hurry here. Do they hold to biblical church doctrines? Again, these things are indicators. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. Now, we call this in theology, ecclesiology, what do they believe about the church? Jesus built his church of the disciples of John the Baptist. And, of course, we find this in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. And I'm not going to take time to read all that. But, you know, John pointed out to his disciples who Jesus was, who the name of God was, and his disciples left him and followed Jesus. And Jesus never baptized the disciples of John. They were not rebaptized. John's baptism was authoritative, just as Jesus' baptism was authoritative. In fact, John 4 tells us Jesus didn't even baptize. His disciples did. But, uh, Jesus built his church of the disciples of John the Baptist, and, and, and by Acts chapter 1 and verse 15, there was 120 in that upper room. On, on record, a membership role, on record, Acts 1.15, before the day of Pentecost. So, the question we want to ask is, was this a church, or was this a church that Jesus had, or did the church start with Peter on the day of Pentecost? So let's ask ourselves this question. What are the marks of a church? Well, they preached the gospel. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, Jesus sent 70 out two by two to preach the gospel. In John 4, verses 1 to 4, it talks about Jesus making more disciples and baptizing more than John did though Jesus baptized not. So, who has the right to baptize? Is it not churches? And Jesus and his disciples were baptizing before the day of Pentecost. 
they observed the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29. Matthew 26 and verse 30. And they sung a hymn. They sang together. In fact, look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12. And this very clearly states that Jesus sang in the church. Hebrews 2.12 says, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. So Jesus sang. They sang together. Of course, Jesus sang in his church. That was in Matthew 26 and verse 30. They had a pastor appointed before Pentecost. John chapter 21. Jesus says to Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, Lovest thou me more than these? And he asked them that three times. And then he said, feed my sheep. It means to shepherd my sheep. That's just, of course, before he ascended. So they had a pastor appointed, and in Acts chapter 1, they had a church business meeting. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 15 says, In those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, The number of the names together were about 120. Men and brethren, the scripture in this needs have been fulfilled. The Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which is a guide to them that took Jesus. He was numbered with us and have obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with a reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. It was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, inasmuch as the field is called in the proper tongue, Alcadema, that is to say the field of blood. Was written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. Wherefore, these men, which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, so there he, he says this period of time began with John's baptism, on the same day that he was taken up from us, was one be obtained to be a witness with us of his resurrection, and they pointed to Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, Lord... Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go forth to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Though they had a church business meeting. All the makings of a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. All before the day of Pentecost. So I asked this question, if the church is started at Pentecost, was it not started by a man? So I contend the church was not started at Pentecost. Jesus didn't say he would start his church in the future, but he did say it would be empowered in the future. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses. That's all future. In other words, you receive power. You're already a church. You're already an assembly. You have 120. Sounds like an assembly to me. Bigger than ours. Yeah. And, but he said, you're going to receive power for witnessing. Uh, so, and then lastly, is there church Perpetuity. Matthew 16, 18 says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, speaks of perpetuity. Matthew 28, 20 tells us that go into all the world and preach the gospel, even unto the end of the world or the end of the age. Again, speaks of perpetuity. The word perpetuity means a state or character of being perpetual, endless, 
or indefinitely long duration of existence eternally. And uh, so, so what do we mean by churches believing, excuse my grammar here, churches believing in perpetuity, that churches reproduce churches. A church is a living organism that continues to grow, expand, and reproduce itself. That's what church is, a living organism. And living organisms grow. They continue. Um, so, you know, and we have this examples of this pattern in the scripture. Uh, when the persecution arose around Stephen, they, the church at Jerusalem was scattered abroad and went everywhere preaching the gospel. Philip went down to Samaria and preached the gospel. And people got saved. And then the church at Jerusalem heard about it. They sent Peter and John, who were pastors, down to establish and organize the work and, and, and it continued, and then they go as far as Antioch preaching the gospel, and again, they send, the church sends Barnabas, who was on a pastoral staff, down there to organize and constitute the church, and it continued to grow, and eventually, you have, from that church, the first missionaries sent out, who were on the pastoral staff, and the church sent them out with their authority to go into all the world preach the gospel, and establish local New Testament churches. So when we speak of church perpetuity, we believe that a church believes that churches like it have always existed. And one of the things that as we, Pastor, uh, I and the deacons, were, were, we were talking about this, one of the things that we want to look at is, can a church trace its origin? At least the two generations. You know, there are some that I've seen that have traced their origins clear back to the, the disciples, but not every church can do that because church records have been destroyed. One of the things that the Catholic Church did was destroy books and records of churches for centuries. Um, so I don't believe every church can trace their lineage back to the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles, but I believe we ought to have... Uh, some understanding of where we came from. And I think two generations is pretty simple. Baptizing church and a mother church. You know, did the church believing in reproducing itself? Did it send out? Or did it send them to colleges and let the colleges send them out? Or, or, the, or did they just go out on their own or whatever? Um, you know, or did it come out of the denominations, or, or did it, uh, conventions have authority, or who has authority, or is it mission boards? Now, this responsibility has been given to the church, to churches. And so, so when we think about church perpetuity, we're not looking for necessarily successionism all the way back to John the Baptist, or Jesus. We believe there is a line. And when we get to heaven, we're going to know where we came from. We're going to know who all those were. But in this side of heaven, we may not know. But these are, these are indicators of a, of a true church. And, and so these are things that, that we need to, we are, as, a, as pastors and deacons, will examine as we consider baptism, uh, candidates from other churches, people from other churches wanting to join our church. You know, what are their doctrines? What beliefs do they hold and practice? And, and, you know, 
These are things that we all ought to consider. Was the church I was baptized in a true church? Yeah, there's no shame in coming to an understanding of something you didn't understand before and embracing it, even though it's a change. What there is a shame is saying, I don't care what happens, I'm not changing. I'm unwilling to even examine myself. 